Hi, my name is Pete Redden, and welcome to The Way I Taught It, next-level aviation knowledge in microbursts. This episode is brought to you by Vapor Global Aviation, creating tomorrow's pilots today. Look them up on Facebook and LinkedIn, Vapor Global Aviation. But right now, we're going to just jump right into today's topic, landings. A word of warning, discuss this podcast with your instructor prior to attempting any application of its techniques. They may be new and different to both you and your instructor. So please, again, make sure you discuss this with your instructor before applying any of the techniques discussed in today's podcast. As a student, I struggled with landings for a few reasons. I was my flight instructor's first student pilot. I failed to realize the importance of FAA source documents and place my faith in costly commercial training materials. I did not chair fly, and in my own ignorance, I did not seek counsel or a second opinion in solving my own shortfalls. After I became a CFI, I was unable to teach landings like my instructor before me. Although I became significantly better at executing them, touching down on my mark every time, and stopping effectively and quickly within the shortest distance given the conditions. Once I joined the Air Force, how to teach landings and how to instruct in general finally clicked. An old lieutenant colonel, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because I'm an old retired lieutenant colonel now, was my assigned instructor who everyone revered and called the great Marconi. This guy could fly. He could teach. He could do everything in an airplane. His real name was Marcus. He could teach. He could build you up, tear you down, and make the impossible seem simple. All the while keeping a smile on your face and making you want to return the next day for more. He taught me how to land the Air Force way. Standardized, methodical, procedural, yet with enough room for variation to land any airplane on any spot on the runway. So today, I will share with you my technique of landing an airplane simply based on FAA and Air Force source documents. I hope this saves you and your students the time and money I was unable to save myself and those I taught early on. There are four distinct phases of landing an airplane. An in-depth understanding of each one is required to understand that the pilot actually does not land the airplane. We just set it up for success, and it lands itself. The four phases of landing are final approach, the round out, level flight and ground effect, and the flare. All of these phases are contained in the FAA's Airplane Flying Manual and the Air Force's Undergraduate Pilot Training Manuals. I'm going to warn each of you now. Some of you will not like what I have to say, as it will go against the gospel you were originally taught. Stick with me, though. Maybe you will learn something to help yourself or that future struggling student. Let's discuss final approach. When we are hanging in the air a mile or less from the runway, somewhere at or around 300 feet AGL, our mind goes into overdrive as it processes a mountain of metadata through our sensory organs. By the way, if you do the geometry, one nautical mile from the runway on a 3-degree glide slope is about 300 feet AGL. Now, in general aviation, We usually come in just a little bit steeper than that until short final where we establish that three degree glide slope. We must now pick an aim point and touchdown point with our glide path flown in reference to the aim point, which is located about 300 feet prior to our touchdown point. In most general aviation aircraft, the aim point should remain in the top of the bottom third of the windscreen. If the aim point moves down the windscreen, pitch down to place the aim point in the original position of the windscreen as you are now getting high. If your aim point moves up in the windscreen, pitch up to place the place it back in the bottom third as you are now low. 
Now remember, every pitch change requires a power change and vice versa. So don't forget the throttle. More on that later. You can easily find where your specific airplane's aim point should be maintained simply by following a VASI or PAPI towards the thousand foot markers. With two pilots, one pilot flies by reference to the VASI or PAPI, the other pilot looks at the runway and sees where the thousand foot markers settle in the windscreen. I would go as far as use the bottom of the thousand foot distance markers, making the aim point as precise as possible. So how can we teach final approach with all this going on? We need to teach it on the ground first till the student has it rote memorized and the basics understood, then go fly for practical application. On final approach, there are seven scenarios we can find ourselves in in our airplane. Yep, there's only seven. It's not cosmic. We can be high and fast, high and slow, fast on glide path, slow on glide path, on speed on glide path, fast and low, and low slow. We will remove the on speed on glide path scenario as we know there is no correction required. That leaves us six to discuss. What I'm about to illustrate is that in general aviation, some have only been providing 33% of the total answer to their students driving an endless amount of trial and error and cost in the pattern. So how do we correct each scenario? High and fast is corrected with power primarily, and a pitch down secondary to power. Pulling power immediately begins correcting airspeed and glide path at the same time. A lack of airflow over the elevator helps to pitch the airplane down with a properly trimmed aircraft. I will cover trimming the aircraft in another podcast. The pilot is still required to move the yoke forward in this scenario. If we were to first pitch for airspeed, all we would do is get higher on final while correcting only our airspeed because we're pitching up and not pitching down towards the glide path. Remember, in this scenario, the glide path is descending away from you with no correction applied. High and slow is corrected with pitch first, as this will immediately begin correcting airspeed and glide path followed by a power correction. If we were to add power first, we would correct speed, but not correct the deviation from the glide path. The airplane would essentially level off while the glide path continued towards the ground. On glide path fast, this requires a power change only. Reduce power with a bit of app trim as well. On glide path slow, well, it falls into the same power change category, except opposite add power, and maybe a bit of forward trim. When below glide path and fast, the correction first begins with a pitch change to trade airspeed for altitude, then a power change to maintain. This is the scenario I see applicants on exams struggle with the most as they fail to assess the, pro the situation properly. Most applicants negatively transfer slow flight principles here, under the assumption that power is the correct and only solution for the given scenario. Before they know it, they are low and even faster. Now, as they try and pitch for airspeed on short final, with all that additional power added, they become unstable very quickly. The result, high and fast as they now have passed through the intended glide path. The most dangerous situation is low and slow. I will say one thing here. Add full power and go around. Remember, we are assuming a fledgling solo pilot here. In no way, shape, or form should we be teaching how to recover a low and slow condition except via a go-around. On that topic of saves, 
It is of my opinion that although we should absolutely teach balloons, balances, porpoises, and a myriad of other issues that occur on landing academically in the airplane pre-solo, we must make the decision black and white for that pre-solo student. We either land properly or go around. We don't try and save anything. Now that we have navigated down final approach, we will discuss the roundout. But first, let's go back to that 33% comment. Most folks are taught that we pitch for airspeed and power for glide path down final approach. That's only correct 33% of the time. The other 66% of the time, we are primarily pitching for glide path and powering for airspeed. I know this is the endless argument that happens in hangars all over the world. Is it pitch for airspeed, power for glide path, or vice versa? The airplane flying manual says it's a combination of both. So ensure that you're teaching the 99% answer, not the 33% answer. Now that we've successfully navigated down final approach, we will discuss the roundout. The roundout is a transition between flying directly at our aim point on final approach and level flight above the ground or the runway in ground effect as we fly towards our touchdown point. This begins as we enter ground effect approximately one wingspan above the ground. One tip here. Teach your students or learners, that's the new FAA term, to move their eyes, just their eyes, either left or right to find a familiar object that has a height reference that they're familiar with. We focus so much straight ahead, we end up with a two-dimensional picture in a three-dimensional environment. So what kind of object am I talking about? Well, a hangar is usually about 10 to 20 feet high. Telephone poles, about 20 feet high. Fence lines can be 6, 8, or 10 feet. The windsock usually is about 10 feet above the ground. Look for something that has a height reference that's kind of a known height reference and allow your student to use that down final approach to judge their height above the ground. Again, we're not turning our head left or right. We're just moving our eyes around a little bit more. A bit about ground effect. At one wingspan above the ground, our wing is about 2% more efficient than out of ground effect. At one half wingspan, it's about 25% more efficient. And at one quarter wingspan, is about 50% more efficient. Therefore, although we are slowing our airspeed, our lift production is only slightly decreased because of this efficiency gain. Carrying too much power into the roundout is the primary cause of floating. So where do we pull the power? It depends. On a calm day, somewhere just after entering ground effect, with a headwind or a crosswind, somewhere closer to the runway, due to lower ground speed or drag, respectively. The power pull is one long, smooth pull once you decide to pull the power to idle. Once at idle, it should stay at idle until touchdown or go-around, unless, of course, it is a soft field landing, requiring an additional 50 to 100 RPM just prior to touchdown to take that weight off the nose wheel. Once we begin the power pull, we still maintain our aim point until about 6 to 10 feet above the runway. The power should now be close to idle if not already there. Now we begin to raise our pitch to attain level flight and ground effect at about 1 to 3 feet above the runway. Once again, we enter a transition period somewhere in between front side and back side of the power curve flight regimes, or between cruise flight and slow flight. I know, I may have lost a few of you there. Yes, you heard me correctly. Final approach, round out, and level flight and ground effect are all hybrid forms of cruise flight and slow flight. We do not actually enter the backside of the power curve 
completely until the end of the landing sequence towards the flare. Level flight and ground effect will last about two to five potatoes. Therefore, be patient with the aircraft and try not to force it to land by pushing forward on the yoke. Bottom line, that movement will cause more harm than good. Pushing the nose down decreases your angle of attack, accomplishing two things. Increasing airspeed and descent rate. Focus on just being in level flight, either increasing back pressure or pausing your pull. If you pull a little too much, but it does not result in a balloon, just freeze the stick and let the forces stabilize. Every time the nose tries to drop, add a bit more back pressure to the stick to stop it. Something amazing will happen if you wait long enough. As the airplane moves away from cruise flight tendencies towards pure backside of power curve flight, it will no longer fight you. It will stabilize and begin to sink in the landing pitch attitude. All you have to do is keep the nose where it is by adding continuous back pressure as the airplane slows to land. This is the flare. Let's discuss landing pitch attitude. I will caution those of you who teach or were taught to land in a full stall or a full stall pitch attitude. This is a carryover from tailwheel landings that really does not belong in tricycle gear landing scenarios. Yes, the airplane flying manual says to land in a stall attitude. Angle of attack determines stall, not pitch attitude. So it is a bit misleading. Bottom line, although there has been a significant push for AOA indicators to be added to general aviation aircraft, we really don't have them yet. Since we can stall at any attitude, we could theoretically land at any attitude. Obviously, the second part is not true. We have to be careful not to force an unnecessarily high pitch attitude. What we need to focus on is the nose wheel being above the main wheels upon touchdown. Land on the mains first, then lower the nose wheel. On a windy day, that pitch attitude will be much lower than on a calm day. So it depends on the configuration and environmental conditions where the stall attitude will be for any given landing. A few final tips. First, if a student pilot or learner cannot coherently explain this to you as an instructor, they are not ready to attempt landing an aircraft. Second, I like to use the mantra aim point, airspeed, height reference on final approach. This forces the student into a positive habit pattern in scanning inside and outside the aircraft, focusing on the important elements required to land successfully and safely. Oh, and don't forget, to add one half the gust factor to your final approach speed as demonstrated in the airplane flying manual. Again, I'm Pete Redden and that's another episode of The Way I Taught It. Thank you for finding this podcast worthy of inclusion in your study of aviation. Until next time, fly safe and fly smart. That's the way I taught it. Episode references. Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, Chapters 5 and 11. Airplane Flying Handbook, Chapter 8. Air Force Manual 11248 and personal experience.